So we've been looking through Advent for the last four weeks. We've been looking at this concept of Emmanuel, God with us. We've covered the big story. Um, This has been an interesting look. We've done some stories that haven't necessarily been very Christmassy. We started with Abraham and Sarah as they were waiting for a child. Then we went to David and Bathsheba, not your usual Christmas story. Last week, we looked at the coming of John the Baptist. And this week, we actually move right into the finished time, the what actually happened on Christmas Day. This is an interesting story we've been looking at because the entire Bible is about Jesus. It's pointing forward to him. It's telling his story. It's looking back at him. And today, as we are at Christmas Eve, Christ Mass Eve, and tomorrow being Christmas Day, the name of Christ is on everyone's tongues. It's kind of a preview of coming attractions, isn't it? When Christ returns, his name will be on everyone's tongue as well. So God being with us is great news. It's phenomenal news. It's also terrible news. It's terrifying that God is with us. Jesus' coming was the most amazing event in the history of the world, but it's also, in one sense, terrifying. And I'll get to why that is here in a minute. Today and tomorrow, as we revel in the fact, as we celebrate the fact that Jesus came to earth, we also need to look at what this means for our future, because there is a future coming. So today, God being with us is spectacular, but God being for us is essential. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to spend some time, a good amount of time, on the good news. Like, why is this good that Jesus is here? Why is God with us good news? Then we're going to spend a little bit of time on why it's bad news, and then we're going to get to understanding how it actually is good news. So the first thing we note in the passage that Michael read In Luke chapter 2, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or your devices, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The first thing you notice is that this is not mythical. We don't believe in a cleverly devised myth. This is based in history. It tells us at the beginning here in Luke 2, 1, where this happened, when it happened, under who it happened, and why it happened. And of course, behind the scenes, we know that God is the one directing all of it. But when we look at it, we see a whole bunch of famous people who never even knew Jesus existed. They died before Jesus was was a grown man. But it does anchor us in the fact that this is true. This is history we're talking about. And that's really good news. Luke 2.1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, a Caesar is not like a president. He was not elected. He assumed office many times because he had the backing of the military. So Caesar Augustus was in charge. This was the first registration when Quirinius, Michael did a much better job pronouncing it, good job Michael, was governor of Syria, and that's the same Syria that we know to this day area-wise. And all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
So the first thing you'll notice here is that no matter what Joseph's plans were, where Mary was going to give birth, he has no control over it. It's outside of his control. A governor says, you got to go to your hometown. You have to go, and she's betrothed. He's not going to leave her alone to have the baby by herself. And so God is orchestrating this entire thing to put Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem to fulfill a prophecy that he had made. Now, why did God not just pick a girl in Bethlehem? That seems like it would have been a whole lot easier. Why go through all this trouble? Well, the reason why he went through all this trouble was to show that he controls everything. The entire universe is his. Even what Caesar Augustus, the the ruler of the Roman Empire, was doing. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it wherever he will. See, why did Caesar Augustus and Quirinius and all of these things happen? Because God said so. God ordained it. Even the Roman emperor is small in God's eyes and under his control. It's a good thing to remember that no matter where 2024 takes us, the Lord is in control. The Lord is guiding what we're seeing. Just like he would guide a stream of water. He planned it all out. This birth was not by fate. It was a part of the plan of the Lord. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this is the entirety of the explanation of God entering the universe as a man. Look, it's, it's one sentence. She gave birth to him. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger because there was no place in the inn. This is the most important person who's ever lived, and we get the most bland, anticlimactic explanation in history. I mean, really, literally. And he was born, and they wrapped him and put him in a place. Now, we compare that to some other famous births. You know, we here in America, we have a uh, kind of a love-hate with the British, right? We love watching all the pomp and circumstances of a funeral, like we saw a few months ago, a coronation, a birth, a birthday. And we have a hate, right? You know, July 4th, you know, no, down with the king, right? So we have this love-hate, but there's something about the way the British do things that we kind of long for. Even when we had George Washington become our president, George Washington had instituted a lot of pomp and circumstance around the president that was mirroring the king. Well, when the king and the queen welcome in a new baby, let's just say it is nothing like verse 7. It is nothing as bland and as plain as this. And let me show you. So first thing that's happened, when the royal baby is born, they take a golden easel golden easel, and they put a golden framed piece of paper with the name of the child, and they have to post it in a certain place in Buckingham Palace. Then a celebration commences, and there are all sorts of royal buildings across the city that begin firing off shots into the air, including at Buckingham Palace where they have a 41-gun salute Each gun shoots 62 rounds. So this is a nonstop firing up into the sky, making noise, celebrating fireworks, and so on. Now, there's even more. 
Up until the 1970s, all of the royalty were born in Buckingham Palace. They had a special room for the prince and princesses to be born. And no male relatives were allowed into the room. It was only the, the woman. Now, now, that's male relatives, because another one of those things, I'm glad that I'm not royalty, and I'm glad some, and some of you ladies might think so after this next bit. They had to take a high-ranking government official to watch the entire birth just to make sure somebody didn't swap the babies out. Apparently that had happened in the past. So there's a male government official. I mean, come on. We have a lot of government interference in our country. Any of you ladies want to have a government official watching you give birth to a child? All right. I didn't think so. Now, she wasn't alone. She had nurses and midwives and ladies-in-waiting. Some would say up to 20 in the room. These ladies had special uh, prestige. They were called God's siblings. They were the protectors and handlers of the royal child when he or she was born. Now, these women had to swear an oath to not take anything out of the room. Because again, apparently, people would steal things like the umbilical cord um, and other pieces. Um, and some people believed that they could put witchcraft on them and make the king or queen die. So this is what it looks like for a royal individual to come into the universe. Whereas the king of kings comes in with an anticlimactic, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, Let's move on. So what does this mean, the swaddling clothes? Now, I, I remember when we had our firstborn, who's now 15 and taller than me. I remember when he was born. And, you know, you get in that moment where they, they hand you the baby, and you go put the child in the car, and you're like, don't I need to take a test or something? Am I really? I mean, and then the baby starts crying, and we go, where are this kid's parents? Shouldn't somebody be taking care of that? Um, now, to, to be honest, Katie and I, we did take a class on, on parenting, and, um, it, you know, they taught us the important things like how to put diapers on and things like that. But the one thing they taught me and, and Katie, and she did better at it than I did, was how to swaddle a baby. And I could not, for the life of me, get it to work. You take the, take the blanket, but you turn it cockeye, and you fold the part down, and then you put the baby, if it stays, right, not moving around, and then you tighten this one in, and you feel it here, and you tighten this one in there, and then you take this part and you tighten it in there, and it's supposed to swaddle the baby because a baby that's swaddled is reminded of its mother's womb, right? And it's like, oh, I'll sleep now. Well, not so much when I swaddled Kyle. He definitely was, I, I, and it's not his fault, it's all mine. I couldn't get the stupid swaddler to, swaddling to work. But praise the Lord, before Olivia was born, they invented a thing called swaddlers, and apparently they might have been around before, but it's like a, it's like a pita, right? It's like a, it's, it's kind of got the, the, the place where you put the baby's feet, right? And the feet go in, and then there's these two amazing, and there's like a ton of Velcro on them, which is awesome. And you have Velcro across, and it's like, ha-ha, get out of that one, kid, right? And so I love that someone invented that. I just wish for my sleeping sake and Katie's sleeping sake that we had had that with Kyle. But these swaddling clothes, I want to point out something. As funny as all that story was, Mary swaddled the baby by herself. She's there by herself. Joseph is there, obviously, and probably doing other things. There may or may not have been animals in the room. 
But Mary is by herself. No mom, no sisters, no friends, all by herself, literally welcoming in the king of the universe. The baby is put into a manger, which is a feeding trough, a place where animals would eat. This means that Jesus was probably born in a place where animals were stored. Now, it could have been a lot of different places. Tradition tells us there's a cave in Bethlehem, which it could have been. It could have also been the lower floor of a two-story house. We really don't know, and it's really not as important as some people would likely think it is. But I think the key here is that Jesus was born into humility. It was poverty. So what Jesus has done is he's gone from the highest of highs, the God of the universe, into the lowest possible birth because he can go as low as he needs to to bring any one of us up to where he is. And Mary had seen this in the Magnificat when Mary's singing in Luke 1.52. She says, He, God, has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We are all of humble estate, and the fact that Jesus came and got down as the humblest means he can bring all of us to Christ. This uh, inn is an interesting translation. The word means guest room, and so we really don't know exactly what it looked like. There don't seem to be any hotels. You know, there's no Motel 6 there in, in Bethlehem. Um, it could have been a family member's spare room. Other people think that it might be the courtyard in a, in, a, in a house. The houses usually have a courtyard in the middle. Um, but whatever it was, they were outside of the care of the people there in Bethlehem. So why were these Bethlehemites so heartless? Are they just a bunch of jerks? Like, what's the deal? Actually, what it was, was it was the fact that Mary and Joseph were not married. There's shame there in this culture. Later on in Jesus' life, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is teaching the Pharisees, they bring this up and they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. And what they're saying is, you know, Jesus, you were born of sexual immorality. We're not. So this, this kind of shame gets passed on in Jesus' life. It's not something that just gets kind of pushed to the side. We don't hear any of the drama of how they ended up in this place with a manger. But we do know that his poverty is what makes us rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. See, Jesus was poor for us. He was marginalized for us. He was excluded for us. He was frozen out of polite society. He was ostracized by family. But his obedience made us unbearably rich, unimaginably rich. The rightful king was born in the most unlikely of places. Don't miss that as we think about that this, this week. This year, as I was thinking about this Christmas message, I was struck by how many times we sing about the baby. The baby. Oh, I can't imagine the baby. And then the baby. We went to a concert. It was a phenomenal concert, but like half the songs, more than half, were all about the baby, the baby, the baby. And I, and I love that about Christmas, that Jesus came as a baby. He didn't come as a fully grown man. So he's experienced all that we've experienced. But the thing is, if we look at Christmas, Siri's talking to me, sorry. Um, if we look at Christmas, we can't stay with the baby. We must move on. So look at verse 22 of Matthew 1. Summarizing this section, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
This is Matthew quoting Isaiah 7, 14, which says the same thing. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. These prophecies from hundreds and hundreds of years before about someone coming to save us from our sins, to bring us out of where we are at. This word Emmanuel means God with us or the with us God. Now, Jesus has never called this other than right here, but yet his name kind of points to that, doesn't it? His name means God saves. Emmanuel means who is with us, and we'll see more about this in a second. What a great blessing that God comes and dwells with man. Remember, in the Old Testament, it's all about separation. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, man has been separated from God. And there's all sorts of elaborate things that the Israelites had to do in order to even enter his presence once a year. But here, God has come to be with us. See, the key is, is God came to be with us so that we could be with him. And that is the most amazing news in the history of the world. So God came to be with us. So, so what? How, how can we get our minds wrapped around this? How can we... Be like the Apostle John. You know the Apostle John? He watched all of his friends die. Every single other disciple dies. He's the only one that dies of old age. And at the end of the book of Revelation, when he gets to hear Jesus speaking, Jesus tells him, Surely I am coming soon. And John says, Come, Lord Jesus. Come. How can we get... To that, How can we confidently say, Lord Jesus, I want you to come back. Please come back. Be with us again. See, one of the things that Emmanuel, the word God with us, reminds us is it actually reminds us that God's never not with us. Or let me take the double negatives out of there. God is always with us. Look at Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. See, God is always with us. Jesus coming in the flesh was just reminding us in a literal, physical example of something that is spiritually true, which is that God is with us. You can ignore him, you can deny him, you can even curse him, but in this life, you cannot leave him. He is with us. This is an encouragement. If you're here today and you feel distant from God, he hasn't changed. It's you, but he wants you back. It's an encouragement for those of us facing down the new year and the challenges because guess what? Nowhere we go this next year will be outside of God's control and his presence. What an incredible gift that is for us. But it's also terrifying because if you're here today and you are reveling in your sin and you are living it up because you think God is not watching, you think God does not see, remember what that psalm just said. Where can I go from your presence? So this leads us to the bad news, the terrifying news, and that is that God is with us. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 1. She, Mary, will bear a son. That's Jesus. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people 
from his sins. Interesting that, um, that, that word, that name Jesus, it's an interesting name. What's in this name, though? And I'm kind of reminded of, uh, of, of somebody else, probably the opposite extreme of Jesus. I'm kind of reminded of Darth Vader. So let's talk about Darth Vader for a second. So we're going to talk about Darth Vader in the only three Star Wars movies that matter, okay? <laughs> New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, okay? The good ones. We can all agree. You guys... You, you, can have, you, can, you can agree with me or you can be wrong. That's the way it works. So, Star Wars, right? There's all this, okay, by the way, I'm going to spoil it, but it's been out for 44 years, so it's okay, okay? Cover your kids' ears or whatever if you have to, all right? So, Darth Vader, right? What does his name mean? Darth is a play on the word dark. Vader is the German word for father, so should any of us been surprised when he goes, I am your father? He doesn't actually say that. You know, I am your father, right? Should we have been surprised that Darth Vader was Luke's father? We should not have been surprised. The name was there from the very beginning, right? And I mean, he is a very dark father. I mean, if you haven't watched Rogue One and seen the end of that movie, you should just cancel Christmas movies for the rest of the day. Go watch that because Darth Vader is the hardcore villain. He is truly the dark father. So I say that in joking and jest because Christ's name is the same. Okay, he's not the dark father. Okay, let's, let's move past that. But the word Christ means the anointed one. Not an anointed one, but the anointed one. It's the word Messiah as well. They're the same words. See, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It comes from a long line of Christs. No, there are no other Christs. There's one anointed. Jesus' first name means is actually pronounced Yeshua, and it means God saves. So let's translate this into English, because we do Jesus Christ, because that's the way they would have done it. But what it means is the anointed one through whom God saves. That's literally what Jesus' name means. His name means he came to save. Now, when we say names as Americans, English speakers, we say Josh or Nathan or Abigail, and we go, oh, those are cute names. They would look good. There's mugs out there with them on there. But in Hebrew, these are actual phrases, right? So every time someone said Yeshua, they weren't just saying Jesus. They were saying God saves. And when they called him the Christ, they said the anointed one. So every time someone says Jesus Christ, they're saying God saves through this anointed one. What a cool picture how names work. Later, the shepherds in Luke 2.11 are told that he is the Lord. So in Luke, he's called the Lord as well. And we'll talk about that tonight at our, our candlelight service. But this is Jesus is the deliverer. He's the king. He's the priest. It's all in the title there. Jesus' name gives hope. Because giving of names back in this time was not just, hey, it looks good. It's a cool sounding name. It was, this is who you are. Literally, Yahweh saves. This is who Jesus is, and it's what he does. See, he came to save his people. From what? They thought it was the Romans. They thought it was from oppression, but it was from their sins. The angel says, save them from their sins. See, because sin is our actual problem. And this is why this is terrible. The problem is not 
the economy. The problem is not political upheaval. The problem is not anything like that. The problem we all have is sin. And our sin has to be dealt with. Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Israel was hoping for deliverance from the Romans. And Jesus goes, no, there's a much bigger dragon that I'm here to slay. See, the bad news, the terrifying news, the thing that should strike fear into us is that when Jesus comes back and he is with us again, he's not coming as a baby. He's not coming as a swaddled infant that is basically helpless, just like every other infant for several months to years. No, he's coming back as a judge. It's not enough to have Jesus come and be one of us. There has to be more. Matthew 25 tells us that when Jesus comes back, he's going to separate the righteous, those who are in Christ, who have sworn their allegiance to Christ, and the unrighteous, those who are in their sins and have sworn allegiance to themselves or to the dragon, to the sin of this world. Our righteousness must be based on Christ. See, before, it was no fanfare, no 41-gun salute, no golden, you know, whatever that thing was, right? No announcement, no government official watching. But when Jesus returns, it says every eye will see. And this is what they're going to see, Revelation 19. Then I, this is John talking about his seeing the preview of coming attractions. I saw the heavens open. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, as are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name for which he is called is the, the Word of God. Now there's a lot of symbolism there, and everything has weight. But let me just tell you this. This is Jesus returning, and he's not returning to be a baby and be helpless. He's returning to judge and to make war and destroy the devil. That's how he's coming again. Yes, we are looking back at Jesus right now. We're remembering his entering the world. But the next time he enters the world, it's going to be terrifying unless you know Christ as your Savior. See, some of us hear this Revelation 19 and we say, not come, Lord Jesus, come. We say, stay, stay, Lord Jesus. I'm not done living up my life. I'm not done doing the things that I want to do and not submitting to you. Stay away, Lord Jesus, stay away. But let me tell you, there is a cure for this terrifyingly bad news. And it starts with the good news, this good news we've looked at today. Let me share with you another passage because we've been talking about God with us. That's great news. But God being for us is the best news. Gen, uh, Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? What great news that God can be for us. We're no longer separated from God. We can have a God who is with us. Not only did God come in the flesh, but he came for us. He came to solve our greatest problem. Look at the encouragement here. If God is for you, who can be against you? And what he's saying is, no one. Because God plus zero equals, I've got everything. My enemies minus God means they have nothing. When you stand with God, 
You have all you need. And the only way we can stand with God is because of what Christ did in our place. This is God's math. Even when the world's against us and God is for us, it doesn't matter. But the bad news is, is if we flip that around, if God is against us, who cares who's for us? If God be against you, who can be for you? If you are an enemy of God to this morning, your very blessings are curses to you. The things God gives you are actually cursing you because you don't acknowledge him. Your pleasures are the prelude to your pains. Remember, sinner, that whether you have adversity or prosperity, as long as God is against you, you will never truly prosper. If God be against me, what then? How can I face the day of judgment? If God is against us, who can be for us? Who cares who's for us? Now, it may be that you can stand up and say, you know, I'm going to go with the majority report and I'm going to say, you know, this whole God and Jesus thing is just bunk. You know, and I've got all these scholars standing behind me. I've got our culture. I've got all the entertainment industry. I've got all the, the, the Ivy League, whatever, and all these colleges, and they're all standing behind me. Who cares? If God's not standing with you, who cares? If the world applauds you and agrees with you, you might not be in the right place. See, Jesus came to bridge the gap. The bad news is there's a gap. The terrifying news is that if you are not in Christ, right now you are in judgment. But the good news is, is that Christ didn't stay a baby. He didn't stop with a golden fleece diaper. No, he grew into a man. And that man did what we couldn't do. Because Romans 3 says, There is none who is righteous, no, not one. That's all of us. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside to their own. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But this Jesus, he grew into a man. And he died on a cross. And why did he do that? Was it because the world was against him? Yes. But there was more to it. The enemy thought they were winning, shutting Jesus up. But in fact, he was dying for their sins. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. See, Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, his death in our place is transferred to us. And this makes the bad news into good news because there's not a single person who's listening right now who's not a sinner. There's not a single one of us who gets this fully. We must constantly go back and back to this. And it's, it's perfect that today the last candle we lit was the love candle because God loves you. That's why he sent Christ. Look at Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were rebelling against him, while we had nothing of good coming from us, he died for us. John 3.16, which everybody knows the first verse, but do you know 17 and 18? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Love it. But look at the next part. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believed in him 
in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Holy Son of God, the only Son of God. See, there should be nothing that terrifies us about Jesus coming again. There should be nothing that brings us any sort of angst or fear. Now, there should be awe, because, I mean, if Jesus shows up like he's described in Revelation, we're going to need an angel to come along and go, fear not, fear not, right? But there should be no fear of judgment. There should be no conscience being pricked of, oh, man, I'm such a sinner, and I've not confessed these. I've not taken them to Christ. I remember that song that we sing, Christ Alone. It says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. No power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck me from his hand. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. This is where you need to be if you are to really enjoy Christmas. Because if all Jesus is, is he came to be with us and have this, this holiday of holidays, then it's really a waste. But if Jesus came... And the reason he came was to remove fear, to remove death, to remove punishment. Then all of a sudden, this becomes the holiday of holidays. Because if Jesus is for us, we are his forever. If God is for us, his wrath is not upon us. If God is for us, we are his. So what do we do in response to this? Well, first, while we celebrate the coming of the baby... Let's glorify God for what the man did. Let's glorify God for how he left and how he's returning. Some of you have submitted to Jesus and you've said, you're my God, I'm submitting to you. All you're doing is acknowledging what the rest of the universe has acknowledged. But we must remember that if Christ is for us, there is nothing that is against us that's not in his control and not for his glory and nothing will stand because as much as this world might come against us, the one that we can't have come against us is God. And it doesn't matter how many people are against us if we have God who is for us. And for those of you who have not submitted, today's the day. The Bible's very clear. No one knows when Christ is returning. And it would be a shame to waste this holiday of holidays worshiping and praising a little baby, when the point of the baby coming was what the man did on the cross. So don't waste this Christmas. Don't let another Christmas go by without acknowledging Jesus as your Lord. The conqueror, the judge, our Savior is coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your Son is such an amazing person, Lord, that you would send him down as a baby, that, Lord, he would live this life experiencing all that we've experienced, and then, Lord, he would die the death that we so greatly deserved. And, Lord, he did it willingly. He did it out of love, out of the love that you and he and the Holy Spirit have shared for all of eternity. Let us walk into and revel and glory and celebrate that love that wasn't culminated in a manger, but that was culminated on a cross on Golgotha. Lord, help us to see it rightly. And then, Lord, let us celebrate not just the coming of your Son to be with us, but that his coming made it so that you are for us.
Help us to get that today, Lord. In your name, amen.